1967, the city of Long Beach, California, brought a historic uh, ship, cruise ship, the Queen Mary, the Queen of the Seas, uh, into their harbor to become a new tourist attraction. It was probably the uh, most fabulous and spectacular ship of her era, the Queen Mary, uh, the most spectacular ship to sail the seas. and It was brought to Southern California to be docked as an attraction and then to become a hotel. Once she was moored at the pier, uh, crews began to, uh, some renovations, spiff her up a little bit. She was already a beauty, but they just wanted to make her look a little bit better. And so as the crews uh, went to work, on the first day they were faced with a very ugly surprise. As the painters began to sand the first funnel, or smokestack for you land lovers, um, a, a funnel, uh, and they began to prepare it for painting. And at first it appeared bright white and was gleaming with sunlight. But as they began to scrape, they went through one layer of paint after another layer of paint after another layer of paint until they hit air. There was no metal, just air. Under something like 50 or more coats of paint, the original metal had simply dissolved and disappeared, rusted into dust, unnoticed and in silence. And upon further inspection, the the, the crews discovered that all the rest of the funnels were actually made up of nothing more than layers of paint. (laughs) And they had to really start all over again, helping get Queen Mary back into shape. When I I first read that news report, I had to think to myself, how many people are just like that? I mean, how many high-profile celebrities have we seen go from what appears to be a legacy of success from a platform only to be uncovered as a fraud over time. It seems almost a weekly event from the world of sports, show business, politics, to see so many stars crash and burn before our eyes. And even more, how many high-profile saints have turned out to be Queen Mary's? Just put together with a little bit of sandpaper to a surface and then scratch a little bit and you find that the core of their character has long since disappeared. The Bible gives us a warning. It says we are to guard our hearts, the core of our character, the foundation of our true lives, to guard our hearts because it is the wellspring of life, the solid core around which everything else is formed. Now this morning we're going to return to our study of the Old Testament personalities, going through the Old Testament as we're getting ready for Christmas, and, 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 and we're going to be turning to 2 Corinthians, uh, Chronicles, 2 Corinthians, oh man, 2 Chronicles 17. Now I want you to keep that all in mind this morning because the, the purpose here is to find a way to be able to guard our hearts and to be able to find strength in every part of our life. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles 17. We're going to have an ambitious task today, going through uh, 17, 18, 19, and 20, four chapters of 2 Chronicles together. In in, in Chronicles chapter 17, we find the story of uh, King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. How many would like me to say Jehoshaphat? It sounds better, because you hear, you hear the term, uh, the, the name, and, 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 and you recognize, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. 
Now, now I think you'll appreciate his story. Now, I have no idea who first thought up the name Jumpin when they put it together with Jehoshaphat, Jumpin Jehoshaphat, but when you read chapter 17, it does kind of fit. Because from the very get-go, Jehoshaphat is jumping into action. Look at verse 1. Then his, King Asa's son, Jehoshaphat, Came, uh, became king of, of Judah, that is, and immediately mobilized the Judah for war against Israel. Bang! Right away, action Jackson. We have jumping Jehoshaphat. Becoming king and going to war. Now, I don't want to get trapped into a history lesson here, but we do deserve some perspective to move further into the chapters. After a unified nation of Israel had been ruled by three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, there was a civil war that split the one nation into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now, for the most part, Israel in the north suffered under some really rotten kings who had no respect for God and and ended up leading their people as far away from their spiritual heritage as they could get. The southern kingdom, Judah, on the other hand, did have its share of rotten kings, but there were a precious few, like Asa and now Asa's son, Jehoshaphat, who, who did pretty well, were commended in the Bible. Let me read what the Bible says in verse 3. It says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed in the good footsteps of his father's early years and did not worship idols. He obeyed the commandments of his father's God, quite unlike the people across the border in the land of Israel. So the Lord strengthened his position as king of Judah. (laughs) Good guy. And what did he do to strengthen Judah's position? At verse 6, he mobilized the troops against the northern cousins. I like the Living Bible the way I put it this way. It says, he boldly followed the paths of God, and he knocked down the heathen altars on the hills, and he destroyed the Asherim idols. In essence, he began by taking on the religious establishment of his day, an establishment that was both sponsored and supported by the northern kingdom, and his mobilization of the troops was an announcement. I refuse to tolerate your ungodliness and that influence on my land, and on my watch I dare you to stop me. Now, at the same time, he severed that relationship. He then also strengthened his relationship with God. You see that right away in, verse, in chapter 17. Has there ever been a moment for yourself, by the way, when you've been that bold? Where you realize that it may be a lonely thing to do, but action needs to be taken. And like Martin Luther, you draw a line in the sand of your world and you say, here I stand and I can do no other. I would suggest that just such a choice needs to be made every day, not just when you're standing in the center of the spotlight, but every day when you take your stand in the world. So that whenever you do appear in the spotlight, it it will make all the difference in your world. And so look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord fell upon the surrounding kingdoms, not just the north, but all the surrounding kingdoms, so that none of them declared war or even dared think of declaring war on King Jehoshaphat. In fact, in verse 11, you see that there? They did everything they could to make peace with him. His act of conviction left them shaken in their boots. And from the get-go, Jehoshaphat was a hero of biblical proportions. And when it really counted, he was there, big, bold, and beautiful. 
He was building an environment for the people now to become, once again, the people of God. Look at verse 7 there in chapter 17. In the third year of his reign, he began a nationwide biblical education program. Verse 8, he commissioned special teachers. Verse 9, to take the book of the law of the Lord to all the cities of Judah and teach the scriptures to the people. Can you imagine that? A national Bible study movement ordered by the government? It was with with, with big faith that Jehoshaphat sought to define the spirit of his nation and structure the society around the word of God. And if you look very carefully at verses 12 and 13, his strength produced the nation's strength, not just with a uh, spiritually aware population, but with secure cities and and a strong society. And by the end of chapter 17, that name really does fit, doesn't it? Jumping Jehoshaphat. So far, so good in the life of this king. In the big things, he was bold with his faith, and just like the Queen Mary on her maiden voyage, he sailed out of the harbor, brave and bold and and beautiful, a sight to behold. At least, that is, until we turn to chapter 18. And there he gets lost at sea, following up on the metaphor of Queen Mary. In chapter 18, we find a sad and all-too-familiar story of the crack-up of a hero. Who knows why heroes run the risk of losing it? Maybe they read their own press clippings and begin to believe that they're invincible. Maybe they make the mistake of inhaling that rare atmosphere of success and achievement and then assume a mantle of personal infallibility. But whatever it is, in chapter 18, we find this man of great faith in danger of trading in his integrity for a false and a fatal sort of faith. Again, I like the way verse 1 reads in the Living Bible. It says in chapter 18, verse 1, But rich, popular King Jehoshaphat of Judah made a marriage alliance for his son with the daughter of King Ahab of Israel. Now, at first, that may sound so innocent. He wants his son to have a wife. But the fact is, it's much more than a marriage. It's an alliance. It's a political act, a treaty arranged at the expense of his son. And and even more, a deal made at the expense of his own personal soul and the work that has been done in this kingdom. It's an act of expediency. It's a way of galvanizing some degree of peace that has now been established between Israel and Judah. All of which may sound prudent if you are a king and are responsible to work the angles on behalf of the nation. You may convince yourself that that your actions shouldn't be constrained solely by religious belief, but should also then be guided by political practicalities. After all, this is a business. What's the big deal? And here's the key lesson of this entire, entire issue. Having done well with his eyes on the Lord, he may have, my guess is, convinced himself Okay, I've got this now. I've got it down. I can do this with my eyes closed. And I can make my own decisions. And with every decision he does on his own, with his eyes off of the Lord and only on the pragmatic lessons of a king, it's like adding one coat of paint after another. 
until the steel underneath it all has dissolved. I'm, I'm looking out for Judah, he's thinking to himself, rather than I'm looking to the Lord as he looks out for Judah and gives me guidance. It's really not hard to resonate with that sort of reasoning. If you are in business, well, there are practicalities, uh, practices that you need to consider if you're going to stay in business and, and work the angles. If you're a student, well, there are corners you could consider cutting if you're going to pass and work the angles. Whatever the case may be, in life, we are faced with a constant tension to adopt standard operating procedures in life that really never take into account God's will and God's ways. And here, what appears on the surface to be a conventional form of foreign policy contained the seeds of disaster. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, made a marriage alliance for his son with the daughter of King Ahab of Israel. Now, just pause for a moment and with, for reflection. Does the name King Ahab ring a bell? Yeah. We hear about him a lot with the prophets who go up to the northern kingdom and castigate him. But even more, does the name of his wife ring a bell? She's the evil woman named Jezebel. Just her name resonates throughout the Bible as the prototypical evil woman, Jezebel. How's this for setting up your son with a great mother-in-law? Even more, how's this for aligning an influence that will affect your kingdom? It was an act that had the proverbial unintended consequences collapsing upon it. And so looking at this move, one, of the scholar, one scholar that I, I studied said that his intentions may have been driven by dreams of stability, but quickly became a quagmire of consequences. And right away in chapter 18, King Ahab cashes in on the deal. He drags Joseph, Jehoshaphat into war, and Jehoshaphat has no choice because of his son, because of this alliance, to go to war with King Ahab. And, and now I'm not going to deal with the historical details of chapter 18 and 19, but here's the scoop. The war that he's dragged into goes badly, and King Ahab is killed in chapter 18, verse 28, and leaves Jehoshaphat holding the bag. And I have to think that Things would have been so much different if Jehoshaphat had only gone back to his great, 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 maybe great grandfather Solomon to read the instructions of what a king should be doing and pulled out Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 and read, There is a way that may seem right to a man, but it's a way that leads to death. You would have seen that in Ahab right away, that death is on the table, and, 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 and it becomes fairly quickly uh, a reality for him as well. Fast forward to chapter 21, verse, uh, 20, verse 1. He's left holding the bag, and it says, Now it came about after this, after Ahab had died, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. It was a great multitude, we read in verse 2. And in verse 3... 
He realizes death is on the line. Out of fear, Jehoshaphat turned his attention back to seek the Lord. And here's where we learn probably one of the greatest lessons we will find in life. On your sermon outline, I have it written down as a lesson of full faith. I was tempted to write down how Jehoshaphat got his groove back, you know, how Stella got her groove back, how to, how to get the groove back. Because in the next steps, he seals his legacy. He started out so well, he took a disastrous detour, but now, 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 in the face of, of calamity, with fear on his heart, he has the, the chance to right his ship. And I suppose that with that, he now becomes the patron saint for how many of us have found ourselves wandering off course, looking for a way to get back on track. So he's terrified. Why? Because facing the consequences of his decisions has become a a, a severe wake-up call. So what does he do? His first step in verse 3 begins with a fast. Verse 3, turning his attention to the Lord, he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Now, most of us may think of fasting as simply a matter of going without food for a period of time. And while that is partly correct, it is so much more. Uh, Spoiler alert. The second step of fasting is that it goes to prayer. And in the Bible, there is a connection, a a, a direct connection between prayer and fasting, fasting and prayer, that reveals a deeper definition. You see, prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is us letting go of that which is seen and is temporal. And fasting is a tangible act. It's a physical metaphor that helps us let go of what has become our security blanket Uh, in the past in order to then deepen and confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice all in order to attain that for which we seek, which is the kingdom of God. I love the way Andrew Murray has put it this way. He says, the first thing Jehoshaphat did upon learning of the impending attack on Judah was to call a national fast. He did not call upon them to pray, he called upon them to fast. Shouldn't he have just appealed to the people to pray? He goes on to say, I used to think of fasting as the magic ingredient that somehow changed God to be more benevolent and give me what I sought after. Some of you may think that way. Yeah, if I fast, God will look at me. Oh, look at that poor guy. He's starving to death. Going to change God in that sort of way. No, 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 no. If I desired something bad enough, I would express that desire by fasting. That is wrong. Fasting does not change God. Fasting changes me. Because when fasting, we are putting aside our flesh in order to allow God to work on our spirit. We are crucifying the old man and letting him die so that Christ can live and control us. And we become more Christ-like by fasting. We are allowing the power of God to flow through us in a more powerful way. It's preparing for us. We are letting go from the conventional sources of strength and wisdom that we, that we have clung to in days past. By proclaiming a fast among the people of Judah, Jehoshaphat was calling upon the nation to turn its eyes back to God. 
And he knew that in order for their prayers of salvation to succeed, the flesh had to die. And whatever decisions that were made in the flesh had to die. For God, in fact, to manifest himself. You see, God desires to work in your life. He he wants to do great things with you and through you. He has great plans for your life, but unless you are willing to To be like Christ, he cannot move within you as he desires. And so fasting helps us kill the self and allows God that opportunity of them beginning to work his power in and through us. And because of the nation of of Judah was fasting, God now then could be able to move within the people and then begin to fight for them as well. Step one, you've got to set yourself aside. You've got to fast. I don't know how many of you do this as a regular practice. I found it to be to be helpful in regaining a focus for my prayers and for my life. So step number one, fast. Step number two, pray. Now, I love the outline of his prayer that appears here from verses 6 through 13 in chapter 20. The first thing Jehoshaphat did was was give praise to God, verse 6. Summarizing it, it says, he is God in the heavens. He is a ruler of all the kingdoms. He is, he is the source of all power and might. It's all his. And no one can stand against him. And from that praise, then the, the second thing Jehoshaphat prayed was a call then for God to exercise that authority and to fight against Judah's enemies because Judah was powerless to come against anyone, let alone three armies. And this prayer of praise Uh, put their lives uh, on God and on the salvation that he would bring to them. Now, you might consider Jehoshaphat to be a bit crafty in his prayer, a little sly. He didn't just go to God and say, hey, look, we have this enemy who's coming to kill us, so please help us. Instead, I want you to notice carefully, he used God's words and promises as leverage before God to say, here is why, God, you will answer my prayer. (laughs) And he begins by saying how great and powerful God is. And then he brings before the Lord the fact that Abraham, their father, was God's friend forever, and that God had given this land to Abraham and his descendants, and that God's house was in this land, and that the people were dependent upon him to keep his promises and to help defend the land which God had already given to them, that they were powerless against the evil which was coming upon them, that they had abandoned the strategy of looking to arms or alliances and otherworldly strength that he had tried to so carefully construct, their eyes now were upon God alone, and so their prayers were, were shaped with the idea that, that, that his, his name was at stake and his promises needed to come through. Well, let's face it, that's where we often fail in prayer. We don't seek out what is God's heart in the things that we pray for. Like, let, me, let me make it personal. I confess, sometimes I forget to look and see if God has ever promised to answer my prayers in a certain way, and in a way whether I desired it or not. That there are times when I have never laid claim to anything from God, but instead only whined about how I wanted something. And, I, I, and I've got to grow up and stop whining 
and pray with confidence, knowing that God will answer the prayers because he has already given his promise to do so, and it is in accordance with his will. And, and, and convinced of that, then what I need to do is simply pray it and then get on with, with a heart of commitment and, and face up to the battle. And look what happens as a result of that in verses 18 through 30. Jehoshaphat did not wait, I said Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat did not wait until the enemy was destroyed before he began to praise and worship God. He had taken the promises already, and as far as that was concerned, he was concerned that was it. And so with the confidence of prayer and a little bit of confirmation, actually we'll find in that chapter from a prophet named Jehaziel, King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah were so sure that God was going to destroy their enemy that it was as if it had already happened. In fact, from God's point of view, it had already happened. There was no need for us to wait and see if God was going to keep his promises. If he says he's going to save you, he will save you. If he says he will provide for you, he will provide for you. And when God speaks, it is done. So now get on with the battle. And and, and that should be enough, but there's a bonus lesson to this whole sermon here. (laughs) Because because in in knowing that they're going to the battle, what happens when, when, when once again God becomes the prime focus the the prime integer in the equation of life. What happens to God's people? Notice how they go. They go forth singing. Now, I have always been impressed with how the Bible describes how spiritual worship and spiritual warfare is carried out with song. In, In verse 19, when all the people fell down to worship, it was the choir that was the first to stand up. In verse 21, when the people went out to meet the enemy, the choir were the shock troops at the head of the army with songs of victory. And even more than that, I have to think that the writer here wants us to to learn from verse 22 that somehow the enemies of God were thrown into confusion by the songs of God's people. Or to put it another way, God had appointed the use of spiritual songs as an effective weapon against the arch enemy, Satan himself. If you've ever read Dick Eastman's book, The Hour That Changes the Book, you may recall a story Mary Slosser tells of working in China for many years, and she says this wonderful little phrase, I sing the doxology and with it dismiss the devil. <laughs> Martin Luther gave his testimony like this. He says, Music is a fair and lovely gift of God which has often wakened and moved me to the joy of life. Music drives the devil away and makes the people happy. We know that to the devils, Luther writes, music is distasteful and insufferable. And so my heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. Here, here you see Jehoshaphat had his eyes now back on the Lord, and the first thing that comes is this heart of joy that comes out, and it, and it just drives the enemies away. In his spiritual classic, A Serious Call to Devout and Holy Life, William Law has a whole chapter to encourage us to chant the Psalms in our private devotions. 
And he says, just as singing is a natural effect of joy in the heart, so it also has a natural power of rendering the heart joyful. There is nothing that so clears away for your prayers, nothing that so disperses the, the dullness of your heart, nothing that so purifies your soul from poor and little passions, nothing that so opens the heavens and carries your heart so near it as songs of praise. They create a sense and a delight in God. They awaken holy desires. They teach you how to ask, and they prevail with God to give. They kindle a holy flame. They turn your heart into an altar and your prayers into incense, and then they carry them as a sweet-smelling Savior to the throne of grace. (laughs) Beautiful picture. And it's no wonder, then, that Satan hates the songs of God's people. Because Satan simply cannot endure the spiritual songs of saints. (laughs) And jumping Jehoshaphat and all God's people, including you and including me, we're given the best weapon of all. We can go to battle with song. So the question comes, do you have a song in your heart as well that accompanies all the rest of your prayers? I went to Wheaton College Wheaton, Illinois, and the, and, and the first dorm that I, I, I lived in was uh, Elliott Hall. It was, it was named after Jim Elliott, one of the saints that gave his life, uh, a martyr uh, killed by the Aka Indians. J- Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. In, in January of, 8th, of 1956, Jim Elliott and his four other young missionaries, I Check this story out. They approached the jungle edge where the Aka Indians lived. And their last recorded act, according to his wife Elizabeth Elliot, was to sing a hymn together. And they added a verse to the old hymn, O Zion Haste. We go in faith, our, well, maybe, should I sing it? Yeah, go ahead. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee and on thy name we go. Publish glad tidings, tidings of peace, tidings of Jesus, redemption and release. All five of them. (laughs) We just scared Satan out of here, didn't we? All five of them sang that and then entered the jungle. And all five of them were killed that afternoon. But, but facing the end, on track and in groove, their eyes fixed on their Lord, they were protected by God, protected from a fate which was far worse than death. They were protected from cowardice and unbelief, from fear, from dissolution. And I think it would be fair to say that they were protected all the way along with song. We have great weapons in our hands that keep us on track and in the groove, boldly going (laughs) where God has called us to go.
We have the promises of God. We have the direction of God, and we have song. So let us give heed to his word and let us sing with all of heart and on our way go rejoicing.